was, I was speaking with, um, with one of our, one of our fairly regular uh, uh, speakers, you know, filling in for me. Uh, and his son, his son is at uh, uh, another free church, but he's a, he's a younger, younger guy, and he's a, um, he gets to preach sometimes, but it's not very often. And, uh, and he, the, the, uh, the, uh, his father said to me, he said, you know, he, gets the, he doesn't get the prime Sundays. You know, he gets like, you know, like the, the, day, the Sunday after Christmas, he might get that. You know, like, you know, like that's, a, like, that's, a, that's a, a bad preaching Sunday. You know, so, and it never occurred to me that that would be one of the, you know, that that's a, a, a bad Sunday for, well, not a bad Sunday for preaching, but, you know, not, not one of the prime spots, you know. So, uh, because for me, I have always used it uh, to talk about the, the, missing, the missing holiday, uh, the missing holiday from the Christian calendar, because there is one. Now, you know, I've, I've preached this again, and I'm going to just take one aspect and one passage today, but, but what's missing? We have, we, have, we have a Christmas, the birth of Christ, and we have, you know, the, the, the greatest, in my mind, the, the incarnation, the greatest miracle that's ever occurred because it involves the very nature of God somehow. It's very mysterious. God became, God himself, something happened to, in, in God himself, in the Godhead. God became a human being in the person of Jesus Christ. And he didn't, he didn't leave his humanity when he, you know, when he ascended into heaven. He didn't leave his humanity and, and go back to being God and again leave his humanity behind. He still is one of us. It's, it's an amazing thing. So we have the, the season of the incarnation, you know, the Advent season. And we've always used the Advent season. We, we lost a little bit this year with our guest speakers, you know, not really. Uh, but when, when I was taking all four weeks of Advent, I said, well worth the incarnation, well worth dedicating four Sundays to. So we have that Advent season. And then we have the, the Holy Week. We have Good Friday. You know, we have, we have Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, and we have, you know, so we have, we have the, the coming of God to the earth and the person of Jesus. We have, we have the, the sacrifice that was given, of course, central. Of course, look here, central, central. But it's a Good Friday, and then Resurrection Sunday, so the, the cross has no image on it. There's no, you know, the, the, the Jesus is risen. He's risen. And we, ha- we have that, holiday what's missing what's missing his coming back his coming back you know we we even sing about it. it's 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 embedded in our our christmas uh, worship it's it's embedded in it uh, born that man no more may die well when is that going to happen because people are dying these days we're having a funeral here tonight for our dear friend hank colby so, you know, he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Far as, far as the curse is found. So, you know, so it's, it's it, it, the Christian calendar is lacking something. And why? Of course it's lacking something. It hasn't happened yet. And the way the calendar falls, almost every year, there's one Sunday left. <laughs> there's one Sunday left to, to think about, to talk about that missing holiday that's that's coming 
that's coming. It's the, it's the return of Christ. So the passage to which I would direct your attention this morning to be found in Revelation chapter 21, last book of the Bible, second to last chapter. And if you open your Bible, if you brought your Bible, or if there's one in front of the Q Bible, it'll help you to look at it today. It'll help you to, to look at that, and uh, uh, you'll get more out of this if you have it in front of you. Um, while you're finding it, let me set it in the, uh, in the broadest context. And just to touch on it, this Revelation 21 we're going to be in, but Revelation 19 describes the return of Christ to the earth. And he comes as conquering king. He comes as righteous judge. Just a few verses, just a few verses. Uh, 19.11. Then I, then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. That's Revelation 19. Coming back. Revelation 19.15. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty, and so he's the one that carries out the wrath of God against sin and sinners. 16, on his robe and his thighs has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That's Revelation 19. So when we get to Revelation 21, Christ has already returned to the earth. We're talking about something that comes after that. Uh, the first part of Revelation chapter 20 concerns the millennial kingdom, thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. That's the first part of the chapter. Then I saw thrones... And on, seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands, and they came to life and reigned with Christ, reigned like a kingly reign, R-E-I-G-N, reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now, by the way, what, what I just read, that's a single verse. That's one verse. 76 words according to the Microsoft Word. I didn't count them. <laughs> Microsoft Word said there's 76 words in it. So if, you're, if you set out, I'm going to resolve to memorize a certain number of verses, you know, in the coming year. It's going to be my New Year's resolution, but you still want to go easy on yourself. Revelation 24 is 20 verse 4, not the way to go. Go John 11:35, which is, anybody know? Jesus wept. <laughs> there's your one verse to start off already. Here's another, 1 Thessalonians 5.16. Rejoice always. There you go. There's two verses, two verses you memorized. But watch out for Revelation 20, verse 4. Second part of that chapter, the second part of that chapter uh, concerns what we call, and we call it this because of, of the way it's described in that, in right there in Revelation uh, 20, the great white throne judgment which every human soul, everyone who's ever lived, uh, whose name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, is cast into the lake of fire, which Jesus said in Matthew, Jesus says in Matthew, was prepared for the devil and his angels. Why is the lake of fire? It was prepared for the devil and his angels, but which sadly also becomes the final destiny of all who are outside of Christ. Uh, and it's this passage, and others, and Revelation 21 even, that, that great and terrible and final judgment upon sinful and rebellious men is called the second death. 
um, the final and terrible separation from eternal separation from God, who's the author, giver, sustainer of life. Here's just a, not a single verse, but a couple of verses from Revelation 20, just to set the context. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So when we get to Revelation 21 and 22, we're, and this is the reason I read this context, we're just, I want you to see that we're talking about what comes after that. What comes after that. We're talking about what comes after the return of Christ to the earth, after the millennial reign of Christ on the earth, over the earth, after the great white throne judgment, it's called in Revelation 20, after that and the confining of evil in that, you know, confining off from, from everything else, all the rest of creation. We're talking about what comes after. We're talking about the forever future. So what's forever? What's forever? You know, the millennial reign of Christ, the thousand-year reign of Christ, it's a thousand years. Well, what comes after that? What's forever? That's what we're talking about in Revelation 21 and 22. Uh, biblical theologians call it the eternal state. What's the eternal state? Or you could think of the eternal state or the, the uh, state of things, not the state like the uh, United States. Uh, what's, the, what, what's forever? What's the forever future? So now we're ready to jump in. Revelation 21, and we're just going to start to tackle these uh, um, this first, first verses. I'm ready for it now. You can, you can read along with me. I'll read aloud. You can listen and, and read it and look at it in your own Bible. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, 
which is the second death. I want to trace three big themes uh, through this passage. I'm going to cite some other passages that also touch on those same themes and kind of begin to sketch out a, a, a big, the big picture, really, of the forever future. What's the future that lasts forever? What are things going to be like forever and ever and ever? Uh, and, and give it that, and kind of try to cast an overall shape that we can fit in a lot of other details about what we find in the Bible. And, and we're going to come up short of everything that could be said. Um, but even from this passage, we're going to come up short of everything. But these themes seem to be the central ones. And here's what we're going to cover. And I'm only going to do one of them today. But here's the themes that, that, that I see in this, in, this, uh, in this passage and really in the eternal state, the forever future. It's justice, renewal, and fellowship. Uh, justice, renewal, and fellowship. And like I say, I just want to do the first one today and, uh, and tackle the other ones in the coming weeks, uh, Lord willing. The first is justice. The forever future is one in which justice has prevailed and will prevail in human society for all eternity. One of the major frustrations of, of the present age is how justice gets perverted. And that's regularly. It's, it's systemically. It's, it's a matter of course. Injustice is just how things work here and now. It's, it's the lay of the land and the land of the living. You know, in the, in the movies, we go to the movies, and what's, the, what's one of the most satisfying things? Do you go to a movie or you read a book or a, you know, a fiction a novel or something? One of the most, the, the villain has to get his, right? In the end, there has to be the comeuppance. You've got to see that at the end. Sometimes they even do it while they're, they even they have the end of the movie and then they show what happened to the bad guys, you know, <laughs> and it's very satisfying. You know, they just describe what happened. I mean, he he something you know the the bad guy got got his comeuppance, but you know what? That's the movies. That's the movies. That's not how it works in real life. Uh, in real life, it just doesn't. It's there's no guarantee of that of that happening whatsoever. In the Old Testament book of Habakkuk, the prophet cries out to God. He says, Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly, why do you idly look at wrong? There's something wrong is going, you know, that's not right. And yet the Lord doesn't seem to do anything about it. And this prophet cries out, oh, why is this like this? How long is this going to go on like this, Lord? So the law, uh, destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. 
so justice goes forth perverted. Another Old Testament prophet, Micah, ministry overlaps with Habakkuk's. He speaks to the leaders. Here's what Micah says. And I, and I said, Hear you heads of Jacob, rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? In other words, you people at the top, you people with the power, aren't we counting on you to be just? Is it not for you to know justice? And why? Because they're the ones who mete out justice or don't. He said, is it not for you to know justice, you who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people, who flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron? That's very graphic, isn't it? But what's he saying? I, I don't think he's not talking about torture, physical torture. He, he's talking to the leaders, the ones who really have power over the lives of others. The ones that any society needs to have a keen sensitivity for justice. And instead, Micah says, they used, instead of using their power to, to mete out real and true justice, they use their power just to uh, d devour the powerless. Now, they're in for themselves. They, they take care of themselves. They enrich themselves. And in, in the graphic image, they engorge themselves. You know, he pictures them eating the flesh off the, off the bones of the poor. He, he later says, Micah says, the powerful, the elite, the leaders, they actually detest justice and make crooked all that is straight. In other words, if there is, a, say, a, a straight shooter pops up in the system somewhere, that's not good. He has to be corrupted himself. <laughs> he has to be brought in. Micah says, its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money, yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. So he says corruption. He says it's not just the, or the justice system. It's, it's even, even the priesthood. You know, the religious sphere is corrupt. Even in the religious sphere, there are... There's those who just, they're just in it for the money. Can you imagine? Do you have a TV? <laughs> Do you have a television? It's in the, you know, we would call it in American society. It's not only just the judicial branch, it's the executive branch, it's the, it's the whole I religious sphere, it's in business, it's in education, it's just how things are. Micah again, the godly has perished from the earth and there's no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood and each hunts the other with a net. 
everyone's out for themselves. Their hands are on their hands are on what is evil to do it well. What a verse. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. What another picture that is. Thus they weave it together. The best of them. This is Micah 7. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright of them, a thorn hedge. So he said, even the best of them are out for themselves. All of them. But the leaders, the elite, the judges, the princes, the great men, they're the ones, Micah says, who are really, really good at it. They do it well. They, ski, they skillfully weave it all together. They weave it all together. In other words, their schemes are not simple. It's, uh, they're intricate. They're complicated. Hard to follow. Hard to figure out. Hard to unravel. Lots of buffers. Lots of plausible deniability. <laughs> And they know it's a labyrinth. It's like a, it's, it's a puzzle. It, it's, a, it's, like a, it's like you're caught in a thorn patch and like you get in there and you can't get yourself out. Well, that was the late 7th century B.C., ancient Judah, southern kingdom. But the question, you know, begs the question, have things changed? all that much did you get the uh, who saw the porter's email from when they just got back to Africa anybody raise your hand if you read it okay just a few of you uh, they had quite a scare uh, when they got to Nigeria their uh, their driver they were they had a driver in the van and you know see they take back all that all that dental equipment when they go. You know, they need all this dental equipment when they go back. So their the van is packed full of stuff. You know, we've we some of the people in our church have packed up the van to go to the airport, go to Atlanta, and just they got it full of stuff. And they take you can't believe all the boxes that they check. You know, to 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 take to Nigeria. Uh, and then they they get it on the plane, and then they get back and they pack it in a van in Nigeria too. So they got the, all of this all this stuff in Nigeria. And, uh, Ruth wrote that there, that when an official, when there's an official vehicle, she called an official vehicle on the road, the one with lights on the top, that you just got, you have to get out of the way. You have to get out of the way. And if you don't, they get very offended, you know, and they, and they run you off the road. Well, uh, one pull, uh, an official vehicle pulled up, but they were so close that they couldn't see the lights on the top, so they didn't know it was an official vehicle until it was kind of too late. And, the, and, they, and this van pulled alongside their van. I, I picture a van. I'm not sure if the official vehicle was a van or not. But the official vehicle pulls up beside, and there were men inside, and they were they close enough. They were kind of forcing the porters off the road, and they're close enough where men inside the vehicle were reaching out the window and banging on the porter's vehicle with their fists, banging on it. And Ruth said that they pulled ahead when they saw the lights on top. They, they, they got over, but it, they were already mad. And they pulled up ahead of them and pulled in front of them up short. Ruth thought they were trying to get the porter's van to strike theirs broadside. So 
they pulled up ahead of it and pulled, you know, and whipped around in front, forcing the porters to stop. People pile, men pile out of the official vehicle, uh, some of them brandishing rifles. And the, the driver got out, and there's a big argument. The official vehicle, or the driver of the official vehicle, said that the porters had struck the side view mirror of their vehicle and there had to be compensation right now money right now arguing 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 uh ruth said to kind of go down and go up and go down and go up you know <laughs> in terms of how excited they were and how mad they were and uh it was decided that the porters would uh would follow would turn around and go back to joss i think uh, to a court, to, be, to appear before a court right then so that things could be settled. Now, Ruth didn't suggest this, but I'm thinking, I'm reading it, I'm thinking, you might be the same, a court, I'll bet it's a back alley. <laughs> I'll, bet you, uh, I'll bet you in a, in a little while they would be, uh, those men would be looking through those boxes disappointed to see a bunch of dental equipment <laughs> that, that who could who could figure what to do with and uh, and i shudder to think what would happen to uh steve and ruth and julie but by god's grace thankfully god's mercy a good samaritan customs official who had helped them borders at the airport happened to come along once again, by God's grace, saw, recognized the porters, saw something was going on, pulled over to stop. This customs official was not armed, but he was uniformed. And Ruth surmises in her letter that they, the uniform, they kind of, the the other, the men in the official vehicle kind of lost their nerve a little bit wondering about who all would come to find out about this and things like that and they decided it wasn't much of a problem at all that they you know it's just the mirror so they everybody went their way but that's but what happened was nothing unusual that's just how things work in nigeria uh, steve has learned on his return trips, he's learned to carry a sum of money with him to kind of uh, grease the skids at the various sticking points where they might have trouble getting their packages or get, you know, getting on the, taking the next step. Because uh, somebody might leverage their position uh, for a bribe. So he's... He's learned to take a sum of cash with him on these return trips to Nigeria. All right, so it wasn't just the 7th century B.C. It's also the present. But is it just places like Nigeria, or does the corruption of justice also infect our advanced, enlightened Western societies like the United States. Now certainly the corruption that infects our society is more sophisticated than a shakedown on the street, you know, <laughs> just someone 
uh, someone in a uniform pulling you over and shaking you down. We certainly m work much harder to maintain an appearance of justice, you know, the intimidating building, the marble columns, the marble floors, the, uh, the, the judge high and lifted up and all rise and your honor and all of that. And certainly we might say we do better in many cases. You know, I, I have to be careful here when I was thinking through this and making my notes here I was I wasn't thinking that our daughter the attorney would be here but uh, so I have to be careful so, so I'm not corrected later not I don't think I don't, I don't think she'd sue me but, <laughs> but at least sometimes the devil's in the details isn't he the machinations of what happens, the hands that wash each other, right? The people who have a prior relationship with each other, how important it is whether you golf with somebody or whether you go to dinner with somebody or in Kiwanis Club with somebody. Sometimes very true. It's not what you know, it's who you know. good old boy clubs the process being used this is a huge one in our society the process being used as the punishment draw it out impoverish them make their life a living hell even if a jury lets them off the hook we'll get our pound of flesh <laughs> in the process the misuse of the plea bargain. The process can end if you just plead guilty. And some of us know better than others from firsthand experience that what we call the justice system, it, it, it seems apropos that we would describe it like Micah did hundreds and hundreds of years ago as a, as a hedge of thorns. You know, you just can't extricate yourself. If you're, in, if you're in it, you're stuck until it's over. And it could drag on years and years and years. And it's, it's like our style of corruption is, uh, it's, it's much more nuanced than a shakedown on the streets, you know, just pulling someone over and shaking them down like what happens in Nigeria, but, it, but it's more layered. And it's just like the Bible says, they weave it together. The, the prophets knew, the Old Testament prophets knew that there's only one hope for true justice. There really is only one hope for true justice. Messiah has to come. Messiah has to come. And he has to do what Messiah, what, what the Old Testament says Messiah will do. And you can't miss this theme and this promise of justice in, like, say, Isaiah's Christmas cards. I call them Isaiah's Christmas cards. You may, I, I, I think we probably get this every single year. We get at least one Christmas, Christmas card with, with some of Isaiah's Christmas card messages. Here's one, Isaiah 9, 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom 
to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Only Messiah can bring about a just society. And he will. It's a hallmark of his kingdom. He's going to establish his kingdom. And it's going to be just, not just for a thousand years, but forever. Isaiah 11, another Christmas card from Isaiah. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. What does that mean? He's not going to be swayed by how tall one of the attorneys is. He's not going to be swayed by the appearance or the, of wealth. Or he's, he's not going to be impressed by courtroom theatrics. Truth is not going to be suppressed on a technicality because the Messiah is going to know. It says, he shall not judge by what his eyes see, or this Isaiah again, or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor. It means he'll judge the case of the poor with justice. With righteousness he will judge the case of the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, he, with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt on his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. So where do we see this theme of justice, Revelation 21, in the eternal state? Well, we see it in that, in the new heavens and new earth. We see it in that Messiah his, is at the top of the government. It's King Jesus that's, who's running things. But we see it most clearly and most definitively in the last verse there, this passage, in the confining of wicked and evil people in the lake of fire, in the sealing off of everything evil away from the new heavens and new earth so it won't infect it. Jesus said this lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels, but people who ultimately choose slavery to sin over slavery to righteousness in Christ, uh, they'll be there too. And that's the only way justice can really reign among people. The only way human society will ever really be just. And this is the biblical answer to the problem of evil. This is it. Now, this is at least a big part of it. The, the lack of justice in the world is, is a common complaint against God. You, you hear it all the time. If you, if you witness it all, you hear this. Why doesn't God, if he's good, if he's all-powerful, why doesn't he do something about the evil that's in the world? Why doesn't he do something about it? Uh, or they say, might say, they might put it differently. Why do bad things happen to good people? And the bad people who make the bad things happen to good people, why they get away with it? Why, why is that? That's the problem of evil. Very common, 
uh, uh, complaint, and it's used as a justification for not believing in God. I refuse to believe in a God who would allow all the suffering, all the evil that we see in the world without doing anything about it. A very common and very powerful argument against it, practically speaking. A lot of people, it justifies unbelief for them. But the answer, at least part of the answer here, is right here. Just is, is in Revelation 21. Justice is coming. He's going to do something about it. Uh, the wrongs will be set right. Justice is coming. Evil's going to be dealt with. And it's going to be sealed off from contaminating God's new creation forever. And in the end, nothing's going to get swept under the water. Nothing. Nobody's going to get away with anything. No evil is going to escape justice. Even, let me look at Revelation 21, 20 and 21. How power, you can't even die and escape justice. You're going to, those who have died, got away with it, died peacefully in their beds. The murderer, the murderer who, who got away with it, never went to, never had any recompense at all, never had any comeuppance at all. Even he is going to be risen, raised up from the dead to face judgment. His sins will find him out. Okay, but why is it? And by the way, that's, that is the biblical answer to the problem of evil. Why? Yeah, they would have a point if that's just the way it went on forever and ever. That justice never came to pass. That the evil get away with it all the time. Then they'd have a point. But God is going to set things right. He's going to set things right. Well, why is it taking so long? Well, there's an answer there. Second Peter 3. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So why, there's two answers in there. Why is it taking so long? Why hasn't it happened yet? Well, for one thing, uh, Peter says, God's sense of the passage of time is dramatically different than ours. What seems like a long time to us is not a long time to God. We, Hank Colbert, whose uh, funeral will be tonight here, 99 years old. You can't talk to anybody and say, wow, wow, what a long, what a long time, what a long life. It's, but to God, it's not. So God's sense of, he says, everybody, even the 99-year-old, we're a vapor that appears for a little while then vanishes away. So God's sense of time is different than ours. But here's the more significant answer. Why hasn't God uh, set things right yet? He's being patient with sinners, giving them ample opportunity to take the way of escape that he's provided in Christ Jesus because in him there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know, there is a book, Revelation 20, 
There is a book besides the book of deeds. There's a book of life. It contains the names of every person who places their faith in, in Christ. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You can't see that book, but you can know if your name is there. <laughs> you can't see it now. If you believe, if you place your faith in Christ, uh, if He and He alone is your hope of being accepted by God, uh, then your name is there. And what about your sins? They weren't swept under the rug. They were publicly nailed to the cross of Christ, and Christ bore the full weight of divine justice against your sins. He bore it for you. And those who withhold belief in God because of the problem of evil... They just fail to, you know, why hasn't God fixed it yet? Why hasn't God put an, evil, an end to evil yet? They fail to ask one question, and the question's this. If God were to bring all evil in the world to an end right now, what would happen to you? What would happen to me? What would happen to each of us? Could you take your place in a just society without spoiling it, without ruining it, or do you, you know, would it, how would it come out for you? For, for society to be just, could you take your place in that? I mean, you know, what they say about the perfect church could be said about the perfect society. If you find one, don't join it, you'll ruin it. Because you'll br you bring evil with you. You bring sin with you. The problem isn't, ultimately, the problem isn't excessive amounts of evil. It's just the presence of evil. How long did it take from getting to the I mean, let's face it, what's the sin? What, this, the sin of eating the forbidden fruit. That's not, I mean, there's certainly worse sins than that, right? And disobeying God in this detail. It took one generation to get from that to murder. <laughs> one generation to get from that. How, how long did it take uh, uh, Judas uh, to get from dipping into the treasury to betraying Christ into to a to a horrible death. That's the way evil is. Evil cannot be a part of anyone who's in this eternal state, you know, in this just society. It, it's it metastasizes. You know, it starts out. It's like you can't even you can't even tell. You can't even tell it's there, but it's there, and eventually, it's like a cancer. Eventually, it proves fatal. See, the, pr the problem is with that we see the need for God to judge evil generally, but they don't think, well, what would that mean about me? You know, I saw something in Genesis I, I, this week. I, I need to wrap it up, but I, I saw something in Genesis 3 I'd never seen before. Uh, I, I'd always thought that what's the first doctrine, the first truth that, that Satan called into question or denied he thought it's the goodness of God because he cast doubt on God's goodness. Really, God, you know, he told Eve, God doesn't, he, he's, he's, he's not being, uh, he just doesn't want you to be like him. He, he, why doesn't he want you to eat that fruit? He wants to hold you down. He wants to hold you back. He, does want, he wants to, he's diminishing your ex experience of human life. 
But really, before that, before that, there's another doctrine that's denied because before, before the serpent said that, he said, Eve said, in the day that we'll eat of it, we'll surely die. He says this, you will not die. He denies the doctrine of God's judgment. <laughs> he says it won't happen. So God's not unfeeling, uncaring by allowing evil to continue the world. He's being patient. He's being merciful, gracious. Come to Christ. Let Christ bear the weight of divine justice against your sins. Because ultimately, justice is coming. <laughs> and if Christ doesn't bear the weight of divine justice, you will. So what should, before we go on, and I'll just wrap it, what should this do for us, this teaching that, that justice uh, is coming in the eternal state? And what's coming is a society, uh, people living with God as their ruler, and us as sons and daughters, and we have interaction with each other, and there'll be justice among us, real and true justice. What should that do for us? Well, well, first, if you haven't trusted Christ to save you from your sins, you should stop testing the patience of God. It's been going on a long time. It's going to end sometime. Jesus says something at the church at uh, Thyatira in Revelation 2, I gave her time to repent, but she would not. You know, the opportunity to repent, it's a, it, it doesn't last forever. But if you are in Christ... This doctrine of final judgment should, it should do this for it. It should help us bear up under any unjust suffering that we're enduring. You know, when we consider the, the certainty and the severity of God's justice, we might even be moved to pray for, like Jesus says, pray for those who persecute us. When we think about this, we might do that. We may even be moved to, to say, like Jesus, forgive them for they know not what they do. It should certainly ease our frustration that the wicked seem to get away with it all the time. Knowing that ultimately, nobody gets away with anything. Leave, and above all, leave room for the vengeance of God. It's Romans 12, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So what about you? Don't worry about it. Tommy, God's going to set things right. And it should give us a sense, it, sure, it should give us a sense of uh, urgency about our own sanctification. You know, salvation was, is more than a legal transaction where we're just forgiven. It also means you are being saved. You are being made fit for living in the kingdom that's coming. It makes sense of, of verses like, like this. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You have to be made fit for living in that kind of a society. And we're on the way. We're not there yet. <laughs> we're not there yet. And finally, it's to, it adds to a sense of urgency about the gospel, doesn't it? Sharing the gospel. 
I mean, pray for those without Christ. They're, in, they're living in this, what we might call, this long era of God's patience, which must be nearing its close. And pray for opportunities to share the gospel, uh, a boldness to take the opportunities that come. Because the time that's coming, the, the, uh, the forever future, is going to be one in which people who have been made just live in a just society with one another. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we, we live in a world that's thoroughly corrupt and yet which yearns for justice everywhere we look. Uh, we know that true and final justice can't come unless and until Christ comes, until the righteous judge of all mankind comes again to establish his kingdom on the earth. So we pray, come Lord Jesus. Even so, while we wait for the second advent, a second appearing of Jesus, one that will be far different from the first, Continue to bless the gospel for the salvation of men and women and boys and girls. Comfort those who are suffering unjustly and continue to work in those who are yours that which is pleasing in your sight. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.